continuing to talk about uh, essential questions. We're looking at the, the questions Jesus asks as we learn what it means to follow him. And specifically, we were looking at questions in a passage of, of the book of Mark, from about Mark chapter 8 through chapter 10, where Jesus is specifically dealing with his disciples, and he's trying to get them to see who he is more clearly. And just, just so that we're all on the same page with the disciples and who they are and what, what was going on with them, we see over and over in all four Gospels that the, the disciples are following Jesus out of, out of an a, a improper motivation. You see, Jesus has come, he's performing miracles, he, he's been announced by John the Baptist, he's the coming Messiah, and what the, what the Israelites in general believed is that, that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to restore the throne of David. And in fact, I was reading this morning in, in the book of John, and, and Jesus knew that the people wanted to get him to be their king, and they were going to do it by force, and he actually ran away from, from that temptation. So the disciples, they are following Jesus thinking, okay, I get to be part of the king's court. I get to enjoy the benefits of power and leadership. We get to get rid of Roman rule. We get to restore Israel to what, what God intended it to be. And so that we see their motivation. So today, we're going we're gonna to go through the passage that was just read in, in Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 38. But to set up the context, what, what's, what's happened is just before this, Jesus for the second time has told his disciples that he's heading to Jerusalem to die, which totally uh, contradicts their expectation of the Messiah and setting up this, this, uh, this kingdom uh, in, in the very physical sense. And as part of, of part of telling the disciples he was going to die, he told them anyone who wants to be first in, in this kingdom must be the very last. And what we're going to read here is, is the disciples' response to this idea of, of being last. So once again, just going to go through uh, a couple verses at a time with what we've read. So if you got your Bible, if it's on your phone, or if you're just going to read on the screen, we're in Mark chapter 9, and this is verse 38. And in verse 38, we see John saying, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. So here's the contrast. Jesus has just said, if you want to be first in the kingdom, you have to be last. And this provokes John to say, hang on, there's got to be an exception to this rule. And this, that, that the exception has to be us, right? So we saw somebody doing something. Uh, and in fact, if you remember last week, if you were here, we looked at the disciples who were not able to drive out uh, a spirit from, from a boy. They, they failed in this. Jesus had to, to confront them and, and, and confront their pride and talk to them about humility because they couldn't accomplish that miracle. So John says somebody was doing something we couldn't do. So we told them to stop. We need to be first. Somebody was, somebody was on our territory. So you can see in this statement that John brings to Jesus, there's this fear of being threatened. Right? Somebody is, is threatening our position. We are the court of 12. We are going to be the closest advisors to, to, to the King Jesus, and we don't want anybody to, to infringe on that. So we had them stop. We, politely or impolitely, we, we asked them to not do that. So they're still suffering. These, these 12, they're still suffering the bruised ego of their failure that we talked about and we looked at last week. 
And so others are having success since they didn't want to share. They're not one of us. Not one of us. There's this feeling of exclusivity. And I, and I think we all go through that as we develop the, this idea of community and being followers and being a church. Uh, our natural bent, because of our pride, is to look at people as either us or not one of us. Right? We, want to, we automatically want to exclude people. We have to fight against that. And so the disciples were, were judging the call of other people. And so the first point that I just want to bring out from this passage that we're reading today is that self-centeredness, when we are focused on ourself and who we are and getting what we want, when that gets wounded, what we tend to do is we lash out at others who have not done anything wrong. And I think this rings true, right, in our relationships, right? You've had a frustrating day at work and you come home and there's your spouse, there's your kids, and what do you do? You snap at them. You lash out. They've done nothing, but they are the ones that sometimes feel the unintentional consequences uh, of, of anger. It's something that we do. It's something we have to, to, to guard against. Because when we feel shame, when we feel this sense of worthlessness, as the disciples were, because they were, they were still dealing with this failure, one of the ways that we try to combat that is we, we place blame on others. We create a scapegoat. Somebody else is God either be at fault or I have to judge them so that I know that they're less than me. I have, to, I have to condemn them. It's a way of controlling others. And it's a way of making ourself feel, feel better. So now that we've got the context of, of where, this, where this statement of John came from, let's look at, the, at Jesus' response. So in verse 39, Jesus replies and says, Do not stop him. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. So what Jesus is saying is if somebody's close enough to me, they know me well enough that they can do a miracle, then they're not going to turn around the next moment and start uh, belittling me. Okay, so continuing. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. So Jesus brings up this point of if you do something in his name. Now, he's not talking about doing something out of a, uh, of a, out of a formula. Like saying, okay, in the name of Jesus, I, I do this. Now, it's fine to say in the name of Jesus, but, but what, what he's referring to here is, is doing something out of the fruit of your relationship with Jesus. Doing something that is a result of the fact that your identity, how you see yourself, how you see the world, is rooted in the gospel and who Christ is. Now, we know this. You can later on, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 19 and read uh, verses 13 through 16, there was somebody trying to cast out demons, and they said they, they were trying to use the formula. They said, in the name of Jesus, I, I command you to get out of that, this man. And the demons turned around and looked at him and said, I know Jesus, but I don't know you. And the demon attacked him. So you, it's not just a formula that you say. One of the things that we have to do as disciples we have to adopt a mindset that whatever we do, whether it's work, whether it's home, whether it's, uh, whether it's some sort of fun activity, whatever it is that we do, 
we have to learn to do it as Jesus would. We have to be connected to the Father as Jesus was. We have to have our eyes focused on building the kingdom, and that is the primary purpose, as Jesus was. And the, Jesus, in this, in this passage, says the way that you do that is by looking out for the needs uh, of others. He says if you bring a cup of water, right, you're meeting the very smallest need somebody can possibly have to be thirsty. If you bring a cup of water and you're doing it because you're so connected with Jesus that you do not want somebody else to be suffering or in need or feeling that thirst, then you won't lose your reward. And so meeting even the smallest need of another disciple pleases Jesus. Having your, having your sight developed so that you can see the smallest need is, is fruit of your closeness with Jesus, the one, who, the one who saved you. You're doing it out of sense of gratitude. Not because you have to, but because you're grateful to Jesus and who he is and all he's done for you. And you want, you want other people to, to see that. What this is called, if you go back, I've been doing these essential questions uh, messages. This is the ninth one. Been doing it over the course of a few years because I, I, I get over here uh, every once in a while. But if you go back to the very first one that I, that I ever did, you can go online. They're on the, the restorationpo.com website. And, and you look at the first one. We talked about the idea of the good eye. Okay, Developing the good eye. And what a good eye is, is the, the good eye is the one that sees others and sees their humanity and sees sees how they need God and, and works for that. And so because of that, because of the good eye, we are to encourage people on their path to God. So let's go back to what John said at the very beginning. He wasn't encouraging somebody in their path to God. He was discouraging them from the, the evidence and the fruit of their relationship with Jesus. See, it's not our job to go around and determine who's a true disciple and who is not a true disciple. We sometimes get in that mode where we think it is, but that's not what we're, that's not what we're supposed to do. And we're going to see that in just a minute, how Jesus continues to address the heart issue that the, disciple, the disciples are having. In fact, in another parable that, that we don't have a whole lot of time to talk about, but Jesus talks about how in, in his kingdom, weeds and wheat are going to grow together. Okay, these two things that look very similar on the outside are going to grow together. And when he, when he was asked, should we, should we pull up the weeds and throw them away? He says, no, let the, let the weeds go, because if we pull up the weeds, we will uproot some of, uh, some of the weeds. So it's not our job. It's Jesus' job. He's going to sort that part out, because Jesus knows the heart. And when we talk about the heart, remember, we're talking about the source of our value. The source of our worth, our significance, how, again, how we see ourselves, how we see the world. And so my term for the heart is identity. Where is your, where is your identity rooted? And so when, we, when I say that we're not here to look at who's a true disciple and not, let's not confuse this with we just accept sin. Okay, these are two different things. We are told over and over, if we see somebody that, that is in sin, if we see a brother, then we are supposed to come alongside them. We're supposed to demonstrate compassion. We're supposed to walk with them, and we're supposed to help restore them. Amen. Okay, these, are, these are different issues. But what we're not supposed to do is judge the heart of another disciple. 
So continuing on in Mark chapter 9, this is verse 42. And so Jesus goes on, okay, in this response to, to John. So first he's, he's responded positively, don't, don't tell this person to stop. If, if you give a cup of water in my name because, because somebody is serving me, then that is a great thing. And in verse 42 it says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, meaning those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. So now, Jesus has talked about the outward. Now he's, now he's drilling down into the heart issue. He, he's trying to reflect to the disciples where this, this idea of territory comes from. Why were, they so, uh, why were they so bent on discouraging somebody from, from doing good in the name of Jesus? Because the bad eye, okay, so if there's, if there's a such thing as a good eye that sees the needs and the humanity of people and the, their worth because they're created in the image of God, then there's a bad eye. And the bad eye looks at people as an imposition. The bad eye looks at people as competition for something, something that I need. The bad eye is looking to, to judge and it looks, it looks at appearance, and it looks at what's produced and what's consumed in order, in order to make those judgments. And the bad eye says things like, you're not good enough. The bad eye says things like, you're not one of us. That's, that is the fruit. And, and remember, what's the enemy of Jesus? What is he called over and over? He's called an accuser. Right, so this comes from the mindset of somebody who is against Jesus. If you are accusing other people based on appearance, based on your own expectations. And so there's this idea of if you cause somebody to stumble. And so at its root, sin, which some versions of the Bible that have been translated use sin here, others say stumble. Sin or stumbling is looking away from God. That's the core issue. We sin when we take our vision and we look away from God and we look to something else as the source of who we are. So at whether that's a relationship or finances or power or uh, political power or you're judging something else to be the, the core of who you are, that, that is the beginning of sin. And the fruit of, of that, the fruit of that with the false self is we accuse people. We malign them. And here's a little assignment for you, because I wanted to keep this message under an hour and a half. Okay, so this week, I want you to look at Colossians chapter 3. And I want you to read verses 1 through 17. That Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul, and he, he is writing to the church about just this thing that Jesus is addressing right here. And in that passage, he contrasts two things. He contrasts when our mind is set on the spirit versus when our mind is set on the flesh, the things of this world. And he, he tells you what the fruit of both of those things are. It's real enlightening. Maybe you'll see yourself in, in some of that. It was real humbling for me as I was reading it and studying through it this week because I do my own assignments. So there, I just had a little bit of Bible righteousness, and I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> repenting of it right now. <laughs> So what Jesus is saying is if, if, you, uh, if you drive a wedge between someone and God, okay, if your attitude of you're not one of us or you're not good enough tears them away, tears their, their, their sight, if you say you're not doing this 
right. If you have unforgiveness in your heart toward, a, toward another disciple, then it would be better for you to just hang a giant rock on your neck and, and jump in, in the ocean. Now, let's just make this clear. Jesus is being extreme here. He's trying to make a point. And he's not talking about just making mistakes as we all are prone to do as we, we uh, live out our discipleship. Because when we make mistakes, if, if we're connected to Christ, then we, we repent of those mistakes. What, what he's talking about is if you're the type of person at your root that has to bring other people down so you feel good, if that is the way that you prove your righteousness, then in the long run, it's going to be better for you to just die quickly. You're going to do more damage than good if that's the kind of person you are at your root. And so now Jesus is going to go even further. He spends one verse talking about how you interact with other people. And now he's going to spend almost the rest of this little passage looking at you, us. Okay, looking at us personally. So I'm going to read uh, nine, or excuse me, Mark chapter 9, 43 to 49. And it says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Now, let me just say, we don't really believe Jesus means this literally, right? Otherwise, all of us will be walking around missing appendages. <laughs> and to demonstrate this as a visual, I almost brought in a nice big meat cleaver, right? Just to say, anybody want to come down? You know, like it's the price is right. But I want to come back, okay? And I didn't want Abby to call Anthony this week and say, Scott was waving a giant knife around at the front of the church. Uh, you need to get back. So I decided not to use that particular visual aid. Okay, so if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than, uh, than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one hand than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. So Jesus is looking at all the appendages that we could possibly use to do wrong to, to others. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched, everybody will be salt, salt with fire. What this is called, what Jesus is doing here in logic, this is called uh, uh, reduction ad absurdum. He is making an absurd statement in order to, to prove a point. He's taking, the, he's, he's taking the argument of if your behavior is what you're going to judge your rightness by, then you might as well just get the, get the knife or a pair of scissors or whatever out and start going to town on, on the, the, the things that are behind our actions. Because if you're consistent, Jesus is saying, if you're consistent that it's, it's behavior that matters, okay, if following him is all about the way you behave, then to manage behavior, what you need to do is take away the things that cause you to, to go astray. So your eyes, what you're looking at, your greed, your lust, your, your anger, the things, that, the things that our eyes see, your hands, uh, violence, whatever you're going to do, your feet, wherever they are going to lead you, you might as well just get rid of, rid, rid of them. And the point that Jesus is trying to make with this argument is you can get rid of all of your limbs, right? You can pluck your eyes out, you can pull your tongue out, but that is not going to get to the core issue not going to get to where sin comes from. And where that is, is it's, it's a problem of the heart. 
If you're the kind of person that he mentioned in chapter in verse 42 that needs to bring others down so you feel good, if you're that kind of person, then simply changing your behavior is not going to is not going to get to the heart of the issue. And so what does Jesus mean when you know, he says cut cut this out of your life? We are to cut out of our life anything that takes our focus away from God. Anything that causes our eyes to veer away. Amen. We need to to cut that out. And where you need to draw your focus instead as we see in these verses from 43 down to, to 49, is we need to instead focus on us. In, in, in the book of Matthew, Jesus uses a different analogy, and you may have heard this if, if you're at all familiar with church world, and if you're not, we can talk about this later. But what Jesus says is, why do you try to pick the sliver out of your neighbor's eye when you yourself have a plank in your own? Right? Another absurd illustration to make a point. Why are you worried about the, 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 the behavior and how somebody else is living their discipleship when you yourself are, are such an unfinished product? We're good at identifying others' faults, right? This is why we crave the opinion, opinion of others, because we're so bad at seeing ourselves as we really are. So we look outward to, to get this, this feeling of who we are. I mean, if, you, if you've been in a serious relationship, if you've been married, then you know it without a doubt. You, you are very good at finding the faults of your spouse and making light of your own. And I'm sure your, your spouse could, if you're interested, they could tell you on the drive home what your faults are. So you might want to ask them. Cutting out. Cutting out means learning new ways of engagement and response. If we're going to live out our discipleship, we need to learn new ways to engage the world, and we need to learn new ways to respond to temptations and things like that. And so the question here, this is one of the big questions I want to ask you and have you leave with today, is what do you do with temptation? What do you do with disordered thoughts or disordered desires as, as they come into your life? Do you feed them? Because right? sometimes it feels good to feed, feed these things. Do you nurture them with the wisdom of the world? Because that's easily available and, 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 and the world just says do what you want to do and there, there's, there's no shame in it. What do you do? Or do you bring them to Jesus? Do you shine light on these things? Do you learn how to respond in a new way? I mean, discipleship is a very practical thing. Right? Discipleship isn't all to do with going to heaven someday. Discipleship is right about the here and now. And how do we live in this broken and fallen world as followers of Christ? So how do you engage? How do you change your engagement? I mean, do you, do you have relationships around you that are toxic? That was part of, that was part of my, uh, my discipleship process. I, I had... I, I would, if you know me, if you've heard me before, you know I've suffered with being a people pleaser. And when you're a people pleaser, you surround yourself with people that you can please. And they demand and demand and demand. So part of my discipleship process is I had to evaluate those relationships, and I had to cut some of them out. Because they were leading me to places that, that I wasn't quite ready for. Not to say that I couldn't go back to those relationships someday, but at that point in time, I had to, I had to cut them out. When you watch TV, do you watch things that build a sense of resentment because you're seeing like perfect images on TV of relationships or other people and, and it causes you anger when you look around at what you have? 
So if that's feeding, if this is feeding this, this temptation or these disordered desires, well, maybe the, the simple thing is to learn a new response and to not watch TV. Or maybe you're weak like me, okay? So when I say that, I'm talking to myself. And maybe you have to go a little farther than just not watching TV. Maybe you have to just turn off the cable for a while. Maybe you have to learn what to do with that time in a different way. Spending time with your family, playing games, or engaging the Bible, learning about who God is, and doing that. You're making some space. It's not about setting up a new law for yourself, right? Because we're, we're very bad with laws. We rebel against laws. But what you're doing is you're opening a new path, a new way to engage with God. Or how about, uh, how about learning new responses, right? We all, from, just from birth, we, we develop these automatic ways that we respond in situations. Whether it's in a relationship, and I'm a people pleaser, so in relationship, my automatic response is to try to make people happy or to get rid of conflict because that causes me anxiety. So I've had to learn new responses in relationship. That it's okay to have a, have a little bit of conflict. It's okay to stand up for myself. Right? These sound like basic things. If you're, if you're not a people pleaser, then you're looking at me like this guy's a goofball. Okay? But if you're not a people pleaser, you have your thing. And that's the point that I'm trying to make, is, is what do you do? If you're a guy and you struggle with what you look at, right? because that tends to be, maybe it's a problem for, for, for the women too. I don't know, but I just know that guys, it tends to be. Do you feed that or do you learn a new response? Do you learn to say, when you do that automatic thing with your eyes, do you learn to say something like, Jesus help my unbelief, as we talked about last week? Because that's a product of, of unbelief. If you struggle with, with resentment or if you struggle with regret, any of these things, what new responses do you have or can you develop? If you don't know, if you have no clue, send me an email. Let's talk. Let's have a real quick conversation. And we can, uh, I, I can try to hook you up, and, and we can, we, we can, we can see how we can get you walking on a new path. Okay, so because my my number one thing is I want people to follow Jesus well. So, ignoring what competes with God for your sense of self allows the problem to get bigger. Right? If you just ignore that little sin that's in your life, those, those little times where that you just keep to yourself, you say, God, I'm, I'm going to just have this for, that, this for me, and I'm going to do what I want. Well, it might start out small, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to get much bigger. Right? So in yourself, maybe, maybe you had a traumatic event as, as a kid, and, and it's caused you to wall yourself off, and that's affecting everything now. Maybe you struggle with ambition, and that's, that's affecting everything, or, or lust, or greed, or, or any one of hundreds of other things that we could, we, could, we could call sin. Or in a relationship, maybe you have expectations that you're not talking about. Okay? These things, though, begin to eat away. Right? We know this. We've all had issues in, in whether it's with a, with a best friend or whether it's a marriage or whether it's a child or a parent. We've all had issues that, that have resulted because we have things that we haven't talked about that end up getting so big that we explode over them. The same thing is true with the things that compete with God for attention. It gives it more power when you ignore it. And Paul, who I mentioned reading Colossians chapter 3, he calls that being a slave to sin. 
when you ignore these things that are inside yourself, that are causing you to judge others, that, that are causing you to stumble, as Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 9. When you ignore those things, you become a servant to them. Okay, we call that the elephant in the room, right? It's the thing that we don't want to talk about. It's uncomfortable. There's a lot of weight to it, and it brings out fear in us. Mark chapter 7 this is a little before the passage that we're reading. This is Jesus talking about where these issues come from. What causes us to, to want other people to stumble? What causes us to stumble? And Jesus says this in Mark chapter 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. That's quite a list. All those evils come from inside and defile a person. It's when we see other people as tools. Right? See other people as, as offering what, what we need. And all of that starts in the heart. It's a problem of where your identity is. Jesus is not at the center of it. And we get so focused on outward behavior that we overlook the source of it. There should be congruence between where our root is and what comes out. Right? That's called our character. And it's one of the most important things that, that, that we have. Criticism of others, which is a form of controlling them, comes from the same root that causes you to stumble. There's going to be consistency. If you've got a lot of stumbling in your own life, you're probably of, of the mind of, they're not one of us. They're not good enough. They go hand in hand. And so notice that, that Jesus, though, when he's addressing this, he spends more time on, on the second. He spends more time saying, if you are stumbling, pluck your eye out. If you are stumbling, cut your foot off. If you are stumbling, cut your hand off. Then he did talking about what we do to, to other people. Now, in this verse, in this passage of verses, you notice Jesus believes that there's a consequence. And it's not the, this is not the focus uh, of the message to talk, uh, to talk about uh, hell and the reality of it and what it's like and, and, and all of that. But I just want it known for, for the record that Jesus thought it was a, a real thing. And that's why he's putting such a preeminence on taking care of, of this core issue. Because if, if there is no consequence, then we really just don't need to follow Jesus. Right? If, 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 if nothing's going to happen to us, if we ignore God and don't make him part of our life, then what do we need Jesus for in the first place? We referred to Paul a couple times, and he says if, if our, our, faith, our faith is to be pitied if, there, if, the, if there's nothing afterward. Now, hell's not popular. I get that. Uh, it, it, we, we don't like negative consequences, but Jesus does put this into two categories, right? You're for me, you're, you're against me. And, and regardless of the imagery, and we can, we can talk about that, and there's been, been books on that, the core and its essence, what hell is, is it's, it's a place where those who didn't want God as part of their life, those who didn't want to order their world around the, the image and the reality of God, it's where they get what they wanted. Right? It's a place that it's a place of God's uh, of God's absence. It's a place of anger and blame and loneliness, where you're looking out for number one, but you can never quite grasp onto grasp onto what you want. 
So now we're going to end Mark chapter 9. This is verse 50. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. So now Jesus gets back to the original issue. The original issue, remember, was he had just said, if you want to be the first in the kingdom, then you have to be the very last. To which John responded, hang on. There were some people that were not one of us doing things. And that Jesus has now responded to that. And here is the conclusion. Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with, with one another. Now, you might be thinking, how can salt lose its flavor? I have a little salt shaker in the cabinet. I don't think I've shaken the thing in three years. But when I tested it yesterday, the salt still tasted like salt. Right, So this, this is a little bit of a, of a foreign image to us because we live in, in a much different time. Back then, most of the salt was gotten from salt march, marshes or along, along the beaches. So when you get salt that way, you don't have the techniques that we have. There are lots of impurities in the salt. And so what would happen is because of the impurities, the salt would leach out due to the moisture. And, and what you'd be left with is this white powder. And if you tasted the white powder, it doesn't taste like salt anymore. It tastes like the other stuff. And what they would do with it back in that day, just as an aside, is they would take that white powder and they would throw it to kind of pave the roads because it would absorb moisture and it would kind of harden a little bit. And so the, the roads would have less mud and, and footprints and things in it. So that's what Jesus is talking about, salt losing its saltiness. Now, where, what is salt? Why do we care? Right? Why is he bringing this up? Well, back in that day, Jesus says salt is good. It purified things. It was a preservative. Put it in meats so that they wouldn't, they wouldn't go bad. In fact, salt in the Roman world was valued as money. The, the, the centurions would get paid in bags of salt, and they would use that to trade and, and, and to, to get things. Salt drew people together because if when you made an agreement or a covenant with other people, if you would throw salt on the ground. So that's what it means to be salted, uh, salted together. And the trials of life, preserving and following Jesus, is, is meant to salt, salt us together. So salt loses its saltiness. Here's the, here's the wrap-up of this last little part. Salt loses its saltiness. It's effectiveness when it's contaminated. So, so, so Jesus said, if, if you are contaminated, if, if you have diluted your gospel identity with other things, then, then you lose your, your ability to be in community with, with other people well. You lose your ability to follow him, him well. Now, the nice thing, Jesus says, if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Repentance. Forgiveness. All things are possible with God. So whereas salt getting its saltiness back is an impossible thing, being in fellowship with people, following Jesus, being a disciple, that is, that is always possible. So as a body, when, when our identities are, are contaminated, we get control, we get criticism, and we get that list of things in Mark chapter 7, which none of, them, none of them seem very good. But when we have salt among ourselves, when we live rooted in Christ, when we're the salt of the earth like we're told to be, we encourage one another, 
We, we want people to be followers of God. We want people to, to follow well. We spur each other on to love and good deeds. We cheer for, for other people, even in the, even in the smallest things. We, we build one another up. We realize that even though we're all on the same path to God, we're walking it a little differently because we have different backgrounds and we have different things that we've had to overcome. We have different ministries that, that are open to us because we come from different, uh, different places. We get to teach one another. All of these are salting one another. We're one community of believers. We are interconnected. There should be no, they're not one of us. There should be no, you're not, you're not good enough. We have the same purpose because we are building the same kingdom. And at the root of it, we want to bring glory to the one who gave his life to make it all possible for us. Pray with me.